I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. The words and pictures, they could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a double and he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, Year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and basically, I've been in a little bit of a Star Trek kind of mood lately, and, you know, part of me is actually tempted to say, and the reason for that is because of fucking blah, 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 but honestly, you know, the fanboy muse takes you where it wants you to go, and I don't know that there really is a like a really good reason for it. It's just fucking that's that's what happens. So as I say, been in a little bit of a Star Trek kind of mood lately. And I guess up front, I mean I need to make a couple of things clear, you know? The last time I talked about Star Trek was back in episode number 184, where I talked about an episode of the original series. I talked about Final Frontier, the Final Frontier, you know, the movie. And then I talked about Star Trek The Next Generation number 76, and that's a, a an issue that was published by DC Comics. So it was So I say that my co- my, my uh, podcast is about comics, movies and TV shows. Well, I talked about a comic book, a movie and a TV show episode all in one episode. So how cool is that? Now, as I say, it needs to be emphasized that when it comes to Star Trek, I do not consider myself to be a major expert. You know, I'm a pretty big fan of Superman, and I would go out on a limb and say that I know a decent bit about Superman comics. I mean, nobody knows everything, but... I don't know. I just, I happen to think that I can, I can hang with just about anybody when it comes to Superman comics. 
That's a degree of expertise that I just do not have when it comes to Star Trek. But I do like the concept of Star Trek. And there's something about, I guess, the possibility of Star Trek. You know, the the vision of it, the hope, all that stuff. It, it I don't know why, it, for some reason, it sort of defies description, but there's something about Star Trek that I think resonates for a shit ton of people. But as I say, I do not consider myself to be any type of a Star Trek expert. But lately, I've been watching a fair amount of Star Trek, and specifically, it's been the next generation. A lot of next gen lately, and I dig it. Now, like I say, I'm not the world's biggest Star Trek fan in general, but I always liked the next generation. Still, and I don't think I'm alone here, the next generation can sometimes get a little stuffy, you know? I mean, every time a guest star showed up on the Enterprise, they're usually greeted with stuff like, This guy is a serious pioneer in the astrobiological thermonuclear quantum temporal physics field. It's a privilege to have such esteemed company aboard our humble vessel or some such, you know? Or uh, maybe somebody will come on the ship and... You hear bullshit like, This guy graduated at the top of his class. It's a, it's a pleasure to have... Just bullshit like that, you know? I mean... Riker never said something like, Ah, shit. That guy again? Look, I knew him back at the Academy, and the dude spent, like, the entire first year drunk off his ass and throwing empty beer cans at each of Skylon 12's moons when he rush for the Pi Pi's Sig Phi Kappa Delta Super Catch a Fragilistic Expialidocious Fraternity. And you know what? I personally, I'm never going to forget the time that Spock gave us that lecture on intraspecies dialogue and diplomacy, and then that fucking hoser rushed the stage and punched him right in the face. I mean, I've got no clue how that screw-up ever even graduated. You dig what I'm saying? I mean, was he somebody's cousin or something? Yeah, you never got you, you just never got that sort of thing with the next generation. And honestly, I mean, there's a limit to how much of that you can really put down to stylistic intent. I mean, the fact is the Enterprise, it is supposed to be the flagship of the Federation and or Starfleet, I should say. And so they're not going to let just anybody on board the Enterprise. OK, I get that. But it just, it, it could get a little bit monotonous sometimes that basically anytime uh, somebody from Starfleet or from the Academy or just fucking whatever came on the Enterprise, it was like the entire Enterprise crew would trip over each other trying to suck this person off and you just flatter them into oblivion. It just, it got fucking annoying at, at times. I'll be honest with you. I mean... I'm not going to go so far as to say that if you've seen one Next Generation episode, you've pretty much seen them all, but there's a stylistic similarity that kind of held throughout the entire run of that show, and it could get a little bit tiresome after a while that everybody that came on the Enterprise was this 
aspirational role model. Uh, uh, an example for everybody who's in fucking the Starfleet Academy and all this fucking bullshit. I don't know. It just... It could get a little bit... Over the top in terms of how complimentary everybody could be with one another. And that, I think, is a pretty good lead in for the episode of The Next Generation that I want to talk about today. This is Ensign Row, which is the third episode of season five. And I guess just to kind of summarize the entire episode real quick. It goes a little something-something like this. The Solarian Force settlement is destroyed and the Bajorans claim responsibility. The world of Bajor was annexed by the Cardassians generations ago and the Bajorans have been refugees ever since. And apparently some of them are using terrorism to draw attention from the United Federation of Planets. Picard meets with Admiral Kennelly, who, orders a, who tells him that the Bajoran responsible is a terrorist named... Orta. Picard's mission is to find Orta and to send him back to the Bajoran settlement camps where he can do less damage. Kennelly assigns a controversial person to assist Picard, which is to say, Starfleet Ensign Rowe, a Bajoran whose reputation is pretty fucking bad. Kennelly insists that she can help and she comes aboard the Enterprise. Despite a difficult attitude, Roe works with the crew to locate Orta. Ultimately, they head to the third moon of Valor 1, where they believe that he's hiding. Meanwhile, Roe receives a secret communication from Admiral Kennelly and tells him that all's going according to plan. The next day, the away team prepares to beam down, but discover that Ensign Roe had preempted them by beaming down six hours earlier. They follow her and are promptly captured by Orta and his people. Orta, who was disfigured by Cardassian torture, tells them that he felt abducting them was, was necessary and that the Bajorans were not responsible for the attack. Picard finds himself to believe Orta, but confines Ro to, uh, to her quarters for her unauthorized beam down. Guinan, who's befriended Ro, goes to see Roe, and after learning that there's more to what's going on than meets the eye, convinces Roe to talk to Picard. Roe believes that she, or rather, Roe reveals that she's on a, a secret mission by Kennelly to offer Orta Federation weapons in exchange for returning to the camps. Given her experiences, she no longer knows what to do or whom to trust. Picard decides that the best course might be to actually take Orta back to the camps and see what happens. As the Enterprise escorts a Bajoran cruiser to the camp, however, two Cardassian ships cross the border and demand the Enterprise leave the ship to them. Picard initially refuses and the Cardassians give him one hour to reconsider. Kennelly, far from helping, insists that the, the Kardashian Treaty is the more important issue and orders Picard to withdraw. Picard withdraws and the Bajoran cruiser is destroyed. However, suspecting a chain of events like this might occur, Picard has ensured that no one was aboard the Bajoran ship and had the ship operated by remote control. Picard informs Kenley that the Bajoran ships are so old and obsolete that 
they were incapable of attacking the Salarian force settlement, and suggests that the Cardassians staged everything, hoping to find someone like Kennelly, who was naive enough to help them solve their problems. With the mystery solved and the mission accomplished, Roe accepts Picard's offer to remain in Starfleet and join the Enterprise crew. The end. So, the reason that I like Ensign Roe is that it, it, it kind of plays against that stereotype I just mentioned where so-and-so guest star comes on board the Enterprise and man, they're just the greatest thing since sliced bread. They're just fucking amazing and, and you just wouldn't believe how they graduated from the Academy with top honors. They were, they were at the top of the class and they, they, were, they were fucking amazing and, and all this stuff. I mean, Ensign Rowe comes on the Enterprise and she's got one hell of a chip on her shoulder and to be fair, the Enterprise crew isn't exactly to ha- happy to have her there. There's a lot of uh, attitude, I guess, conflict between Ensign Rowe and the crew of the Enterprise. And honestly, it was it was seeing this episode, Ensign Rowe, years and years and years ago that I, well, I don't know if I'd want to go so far as to say I finally got Star Trek, but I at least got the Enterprise. Because like I say, this is the flagship of Starfleet. Only the best of the best of the best are allowed anywhere near the Enterprise. I mean, they may be able to have more of a lax kind of recruitment policy for the USS suck my dick, but the Enterprise is the pride of of Starfleet, and the idea of having somebody like Ensign Rowe on board the Enterprise, it's basically, it, it's, this is, guys, this is not cricket. This is not the way that things are supposed to be done. And it's understandable that Picard, Riker, LaForge, all of them, are going to be a little bit pissed off about Ensign Rowe getting what amounts to the mother of all free passes when every single one of them had to work their butts off in order to to make the grade, in order, in order to be permitted to even look at the Enterprise. And so, for for as aggravating as as that as that whole. I don't know, mutual admiration society bullshit that happens with guest stars as aggravating as that can be sometimes. Ensign Rowe is, uh, it's just, it's a nice example of real conflict being introduced into uh, the next generation and also just kind of breaking that damned aggravating trend. So just by itself, I was going to be friendly to this episode right from the start. But I guess the other thing is, I think basically everybody has known an Ensign Rowe at some point in life, this kind of tough-as-nails chick with a little bit of an attitude problem. She does things her own way. And it's strange to think that I think Kirk might have been a little bit more open-minded with Rowe than Picard. Picard had to kind of see the error of his ways. In fact, there's there's this... 
little moment at the end of the episode. I think you've got a great deal to learn from Starfleet. I always thought Starfleet had a lot to learn from me, Captain. That's an attitude that I've found common. Among the best officers I've ever served with. And you know, it's... It's the kind of thing I could picture Captain Kirk saying. You know, he would say something like that. And the thing is, I don't know if Picard was necessarily thinking of Kirk whenever he replied to her. But I think he's at least familiar with the model that, you know, there are Starfleet officers who don't necessarily operate totally on the straight and narrow. Or at least what Captain Picard considers to be the straight and narrow. But that's okay, you know. The fact is, Ensign Rowe is somebody who's, she's made mistakes, and she obviously regrets them and would do things differently if she could. I mean, there's a real sense in which that the only difference between Rowe and Picard is luck. And honestly, I mean, not a whole lot is said about what exactly happened with Ensign Rowe and her background, so we don't really know for sure. But considering how technical and technologically advanced that kind of job is, it's really not a stretch for me to think that Roe made what could be considered an honest mistake. And yeah, people died, but I mean, I'm sorry, shit happens, you know? Maybe I'm the one who's not taking it seriously enough, but shit happens. And on the one hand, Roe has never totally forgiven herself for all of that. But I think she might have had an easier time of it if somebody else would have shown her just a little bit of mercy. So, I don't know. All around, the... I guess what I'm saying is everybody's known and some it, somebody who's a lot like Ensign Roe. You know, this... Like I say, just tough as nails, does things her own way type. And that type of person usually gets decent results. There may be some mistakes along the way, but they get the end result right. And that, I mean, I'm sorry, that's worth something, you know? But the other thing about Ensign Row that, as an episode, I mean, that kind of works for me is actually the very beginning where where Picard he's sitting there he's getting that haircut from the blue guy whose name escapes me and he's look everybody everybody who's who's had any kind of I guess sufficient authority type positions in their life has got to be accustomed to the tendency of that people I guess of a lower rank have of trying to tell you what you need to do with your job and you know I mean it, it's just it, it's kind of funny it can be pretty fucking aggravating because you know dude you get to tell me what I need to be doing but you're not the one that's gonna have to face the consequences if what you're recommending doesn't work so shut the fuck up but I mean, Picard's a lot nicer about it than that, but can't exactly overlook the, I don't know, resentment, I guess, 
it can be a little bit aggravating. And just as aggravating, it comes actually later on the bridge between uh, Kirk and Riker, when it comes out that Ensign Rowe is... Actually, it's not on the bridge, but Ensign Rowe is, uh, is being relocated to the Enterprise by by Admiral Kennelly. And it's the kind of just dipshit upper management thing. Look, we've all been through it, right? Where our boss tells us we've got to do something that's completely fucking retarded. And we get to grin and do it because he's the boss. And it doesn't matter how retarded an idea it really is. It happens. And... Again, this is something that at least I personally haven't seen a whole lot of in Star Trek where you have just inept upper management, you know? And that to me is what Admiral Kennelly is. He's he's that dipshit moron who should never have gotten promoted as high up as he did, but somehow he's he he's been advanced and some guy who's not even fit to take orders from you is the one who's giving you your orders. And I don't know. I just, I find that just very true to life. It doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to connect with that. Another kind of neat moment is, I guess, the sort of three-way meeting between Picard, Riker, and Roe, where they, they pretty much kind of set the terms for what her stay on the ship is going to be like. Look, none of us like each other. None of us want this. Let's just go ahead, get it over with, do the best we can, and this will all be over by the end of the episode. And one of the things I've got to say is Michelle Forbes, the actress who plays uh, Ro Laren, it's easy to forget that, you know what, There's a there's a whole process, I guess, to acting. And she really does bring it across. I don't know. It looks effortless. You know, I mean, she'll do these little things like interrupt Picard and answer questions without saying sir or captain or whatever. And she's just, she's not quite belligerent, but she's not exactly following the proper decorum either, you know? And that again, I mean, it's not that she doesn't respect Starfleet. She doesn't respect the system. She just doesn't completely fit in. And instead of having a really long scene where she spends several minutes saying, hey, I don't fit in here, they show us that, no, she, in fact, does not fit in. And I don't know. I mean, it's just writing like this doesn't come along just all the time. And so I usually just drink it right up whenever it whenever it does come around so that that aspect of things it really did work for me but we start getting into that that i guess that powwow involving uh data wharf crusher row uh picard riker and whoever else where they basically are outlining their ideas for how best to make contact with the bajorans and This is where Ensign Rowe really does kind of start earning her pay, so to speak, in that she gives 
the Enterprise crew very good information, very reliable, I guess, intel on not just what to do, but also to whom they should speak in order to get results. And she does it, I guess, in a, again, it's not quite belligerent, but it's this sort of impatient kind of way where, I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, I, there's a lot to be said for the patience that Picard shows in all of this for not locking her up inside a, a, a space lock and then zipping her off into space. He's showing a lot of restraint there, but on, but at the same time, I mean, he's got a point. I mean, she's not following protocol. She's not always adhering to decorum. I mean, she's really not the model of the perfect Starfleet officer. Yes, she does have something to offer and we can't minimize that, but you know, fucking at the same time, I mean, she really needs to get her shit together. And so, I mean, Gene Roddenberry gets kicked around a lot for the amount of conflict, like interpersonal conflict he didn't want to have in Star Trek, especially the next generation. And this is one of those times when I, I think we can see that, you know what, there's a lot to be said for these people. Not necessarily differences in terms of ideology or worldview, necessarily, but more personality types coming into a conflict with each other and the amount of just badass drama that can be that can be had from that and i don't know i mean it's just that part of things i was actually, i i thought was very enjoyable and again it's just so different from the usual kind of stuffy approach that i've always I hate to say it, I've always kind of associated with Star Trek because when you think about it, the characters on Star Trek The Next Generation, they're just not as dynamic as the characters from the original series. You know, where the characters, the the crew from the original series, I mean, they could bicker with each other and and argue. I mean, you had Bones and, and, and Spock who were always tearing each other new assholes. And, and then, of course, you had... I don't know, Chekhov telling us that the Russians basically invented life and all of these other things. And these characters are, they're not necessarily in conflict, but they're hardly on the same page either. And that was sometimes in, I don't know, shorter supply, I guess, with the next generation. And oftentimes these characters... I'm not going to go so far as to call them super friends or cardboard cutouts or anything like that, but these characters had a richness to them that I don't know that the writing would always explore. I mean, Picard, he always struck me, and if I'm wrong on this, please feel free to correct me, because like I say, I've never considered myself to be you know, a major league Star Trek expert, but Picard is the... He's the by-the-book captain, you know? I mean, he's he's going to err on the side of, in most cases, he's going to err on the side of sticking with Starfleet rules and protocol. And he would be, honestly, he would be the last person to disobey orders unless there was absolutely, positively, 
no other choice. And you compare that to to Captain Kirk, who he's gonna he's gonna follow Starfleet rules as closely as he can. He's gonna get the job done, and if he can and if he can do that while obeying the rules, then, you know, it'll be his pleasure. But ultimately, he doesn't consider himself to be completely bound to the rules. In Kirk's world, the rules exist to protect and serve, but the minute that stops happening, it's time to break the rules. Picard, he's just less likely to do that. And and so the conflict between him and Roe is, I think, a whole lot richer than it would be between Kirk and Roe. So, I don't know. Like I say, this is a a depth of potential that I don't know that Star Trek The Next Generation would always remember to employ, but I don't know. All around, this is just... To me, this, this episode stands out as being just a very relatable episode. You know, you had idiotic mental management... A misunderstanding with your boss, which is to say Picard. And then, like I say, this everybody has known a girl like Ensign Rowe. And she really does mean well, but she doesn't she doesn't necessarily have the same tact as everyone else. But that doesn't mean she's got nothing to offer. So it works for me is what I'm saying. So, that, I think, is pretty much it for Ensign Row. So, I'm, I've got a lot of feedback that I need to work through here, so just bear with me. Be right back after these messages. Adventures of Superman on the big screen and the small screen, starting with the Fleischer Shorts. The Kirk Allen movie serials. Superman and the Mole Men. The 1950s television series, The Adventures of Superman. 
Christopher Reeve movies, Lois and Clark, Superman the Animated Series, and more. Come check out the Man of Screen podcast at themanofscreen.podomatic.com. Okay, I'm back now and I've got a little bit of feedback that I want to work through here because guys, you have to understand, I really am trying to get caught up on all of my all of my feedback and stuff. I've got this massive fucking backlog of feedback. This is basically emails and whatnot that people have sent to me at this point over the years that I'm still trying to work my way through. So it's just honestly Usually, the what ends up happening is I'll look at an episode's runtime, like just before I, I stop recording, and think to myself, well, this thing has already gone over an hour as it is. It's a bit much to want to ask people to basically stick around for, at this point, more than an hour and listen to feedback and stuff. So, basically, right or wrong, what I've decided is going to be my policy is that if I've got an episode that's less than an hour in length, that's going to be a pretty good candidate to receive feedback. Whereas if it's an hour or more, I'll probably want to save feedback for another occasion. This way, you can generally figure that your, your comments, your emails, all of your feedback and whatnot, it will get read sooner or later, right? So, that's what I'm hoping for. So, in relation to that, the email that I want to talk about today, this came, tell you how far behind on feedback I really am. This is dated June the 13th, 2015. 15, one five. So, I'm pretty far behind, obviously. Subject line is episode two is, is better. Hold on. Episode 2 is the better episode 1. My apologies. This is what happens when you just glance at stuff. Episode 2 is the better episode 1. And it was sent in by my old friend, Mike Zumo. I believe it's pronounced Zumo. I could be wrong about that. The spelling is Z-U-M-M-O. So, Mike, if I'm wrong about that, I apologize. It's just that whenever... Like the... The few times I can actually remember you ever having said it, you, you always say it a little bit fast. And so, anyway, I am not criticizing you, I promise. Anyway, get into the email, though. Subject line, like I say, is episode two is the better episode one. Mike writes, hey, Magnus, let me start off by saying my son and I watched episode two, meaning Star Wars episode two, Attack of the Clones tonight. And never did he once utter the phrase, I'm bored, that I heard several times during episode one. This film, in my, in my eyes, exposed one of the biggest weaknesses of episode one. 
Anakin. I'm not referring to Jake Lloyd specifically, but the decision to make Anakin nine years old during The Phantom Menace. That is the sole reason this movie has to take place ten years after The Phantom Menace. If Anakin were 13 in Episode 1, they might have been able to use an actor for him for all three films, and maybe it would have flowed better than the other two. I'm going to put the email on pause and say, Mike, I don't actually know this to be true, but I've read between a lot of different lines a lot of different times, and my perception is that when George Lucas was writing the Star Wars prequels, he basically just made it all up as he went along. Now, yeah, he claims he has this little outline that served as a like a like the broad strokes of what was going to happen in the prequel trilogy, but basically in terms of, you know, specific characters or specific subplots or, you know, stuff like that, he pretty much just freewheeled on all that stuff. He pretty much just made it all up as he went along. And so when he was starting out, he didn't he didn't really outline each of the prequel movies ahead of time. He didn't, he did, I mean, he had like a general outline, like I say, that he wrote back in the 70s or so he says, that maybe was a couple of paragraphs long, but he didn't really outline in the 90s when he actually started working on these movies. He didn't actually outline each of the movies and figure out, okay, so this stuff is going to happen in episode one. This stuff is going to happen in episode two. And then this stuff finally is going to happen in episode three. He didn't do that. He basically just read his outline. Okay, well, I can use this stuff right here. I'm just going to toss this into episode one and then go back to the outline. Okay, I'm going to toss this stuff into episode two. And he's doing all of this as he's writing each script before each movie begins production. So he's literally flying blind into every single one of these movies that he makes. And really, there are two major things that have to happen in, in episode one. Number one. Anakin has got to leave his mother behind. Number two, Palpatine has to become Chancellor of the Republic. Those are the two main things that need to, that need to occur in episode one. And then after that, George Lucas basically has to improvise a movie with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and then stick the episode one label on that. And so when people look at episode one and say, well... There's not a whole lot here of great consequence to the Star Wars saga. I don't think they're wrong, you know? I mean, that's a completely... I think that's a completely valid opinion to have because, yeah, two things happen. Like I say, Anakin leaves his mom and Palpatine becomes the Chancellor. And those things get paid off in greater and greater dividends as... The movies go on, and I don't really think there's any denying that on the one hand. But on the other hand, you really can't argue that episode one as a film doesn't have a lot of padding to it. You know, in fact, I dare say most of episode one is padding. And so it kind of leaves the viewer kind of like, and, and, and I mean the viewer who's familiar with the story of Star Wars, the saga, basically the ins and outs of the myth, it kind of leaves him kind of holding his dick in the wind and not really having a whole lot to invest himself in as far as episode one is concerned. Now, my God's honest opinion is this. 
episode one, as it is, it could have been completely left untouched. It, it could be the exact movie that you know right now with only one small change. And if Lucas had made this small change to The Phantom Menace during the script stage or the writing stage or just whatever, if Lucas had made this single change, my God's honest opinion is that most people would have a much higher appreciation for The Phantom Menace. And the change is this. The movie starts the way that you know. It continues the way that you know. Uh, Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan, they have to flee Naboo with Queen Amidala in tow. And then they, they're, they're forced to land on Tatooine in order to repair their ship. If Qui-Gon had been the one who stayed on the ship, and then Obi-Wan had been the one to go into Mos Espa, and then ended up finding Anakin, recruiting him, and basically hung out with Anakin completely unsupervised for the for the entire second act. Uh, well, not the entire second act, but I guess the latter half of the first act of The Phantom Menace. Number one, I mean, that would establish the foundation for the Anakin-Obi-Wan relationship fairly early on. And it, when you really just look at the prequels with kind of a critical eye, It's there's really no arguing that their relationship isn't really firmly established until Revenge of the Sith, by which time, you know, the shit is almost over. And so establishing it fairly earlier on in the process during the latter half of the first act of of the Phantom Menace, and then it would be Obi-Wan who's he's the one who's basically uh going to bat for Anakin in front of the Jedi Council and saying, look, I can train this guy. I know I can do it. Number one, that would fit in better, I think, with what we saw in, you know, from Obi-Wan in the original trilogy, where he hints that his own arrogance is partly responsible for Anakin giving into the dark side. You know, he believed that he could do just as good a job at training Anakin as Yoda, and he was wrong. Except we never fucking see that. You know, what we see is Qui-Gon uh, stepping up and uh, going to bat in front of the Jedi Council on Anakin's behalf, but we never see Obi-Wan really do anything except follow the rules, you know? And in a weird kind of way, Qui-Gon kind of inherited Obi-Wan's role his intended role as kind of a renegade. And I don't think the narrative really benefits from that. But like I say, my opinion is that is that if Qui-Gon had been the one to stay on the ship and then Obi-Wan had been the one to go to Mos Espa and he's the one who recruited Anakin, he's the one that, that uh, brought him back to Coruscant, he's the one that fought for him in front of the Jedi Council, he's the one that argued for training him, he's the one who believed that Anakin is the chosen one, if, if all that stuff had been done by Obi-Wan, I think the movie itself would have really benefited from that because, number one, it gives audiences who are familiar with Star Wars, it gives them that familiar anchor from the original trilogy that I think a lot of them were looking for and fucking never got. 
And then for people who are new to Star Wars, who are only really getting into it at the time of The Phantom Menace, and guys, there are a ton of those, that would give them better context for what happens later on in the prequels. And so it's it's one of those things that it's a decision I'm never going to understand. I will never understand why George Lucas decided to do things in that way. You know, and I don't mean that, you know, like to bash on the guy, criticize him, second guess him, you know, anything like that. Because I think people go way over the line with that stuff, or at least they have in the past. But looking back at it, you know, it is just such an obvious way to structure the story that I would love to know why it is that George Lucas made this decision. And the thing is, he's probably the most dishonest motherfucker in the world. So, you know, George Lucas is never gonna come clean about, uh, you know, what his creative process involving Star Wars really was. For some reason, it's important to him that everyone thinks that he's this amazing myth maker and that he had this shit planned all out back in uh, 1974 and he's just been sticking to it ever since. He hasn't changed a thing. It's fucking bullshit. It's demonstrably not true. And so now we're left kind of trying to piece together what it is that George Lucas legitimately did have planned out ahead of time versus what he had to invent and make up as he went along, you know? And frankly, that's a story I'm far more interested in hearing than Lucas once again saying, well, it was always going to be this way. I had this shit planned out way back in the motherfucking beginning, back when I first came out of my mother's womb. I knew that I was going to write Star Wars. You know, he just fucking says that shit all the time. And I just, I'm sorry, I don't buy it. Okay, I don't fucking buy it. Man, okay, I didn't mean to blow up at you here. Anyway, your point is that if Anakin had been a little bit older, they may have been able to use the same actor for all three of the movies. And, you know, the way I look at it is so much of this has to... A kid who's 13 years old and is forced to say goodbye to his mom, I mean, yeah, that's sad, but, you know, he's growing up, you know, and he had, let's face it, 13 good years with her, you know, and she's, at least in terms of contributing to to him on a personal level in terms of helping shape his identity, his values, his philosophies, his worldview, and all of that sort of thing. I'm not going to I mean obviously he's not exactly old enough to go out and get a fucking job. I mean I'm not I'm not making that claim, but it hits harder because Anakin is 9 years old. He is a child. Whereas somebody who's 13 they're starting to really grow up, you know? And, you know, I can kind of defend this decision in as much as, no, it doesn't really give us uh, continuity, which is to say, you know, with the actor, it doesn't give us any casting continuity with Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith in one sense. But in, But on the other hand, you know, it's, it hits that much harder because of the fact that this is a nine-year-old child who's having to say goodbye to his mom. So I understand this argument when people make it. I just don't especially agree with it, you know? I don't think that it would hit quite as hard 
if a 13-year-old Anakin had to say goodbye to his mom in episode one, th as it would that a nine-year-old Anakin had to say goodbye to his mom in episode one. And so one of the things, though, about episode one that I think would have actually, again, kind of benefited the narrative would have been if, even if it was just once, just once, Anakin had used the Force on purpose. You know, so often, and you know, what we see in episode one is that Anakin is being used by the Force, but he's not really using the Force. You know, the Force is using him, which is not the same thing. You know, and it makes... I don't know. It's, it's just kind of hard to believe that the Force has this level of control over people, you know? I don't know. It's hard, at least, for me to believe in. Whereas if Anakin is consciously using the Force at least once or twice, then it makes some of the incredibly insane things that he does in The Phantom Menace that much easier to believe in, you know? I don't know. So, anyway, get back into Mike's email, though. He writes, and he's kind of moving on to other subjects here. Uh, Mike writes, what were Darth Sidious slash Palpatine and everyone else doing over the past 10 years? Sitting around. And I'm going to put this email back, uh, back on pause and say, if you mean like in-universe, what were they doing dur during the 10-year the span of time between The Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones? What I've assumed is basically... Not very long after the events of episode one, Palpatine recruited uh, Count Dooku to join the dark side, join the Sith. And one of the last things that Dooku did before resigning from the Jedi Order was place the clone order on Kamino for the clone army. And so what you've said is... I think what you go on to say is that at one point, the 10-year gap that exists between The Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones is basically designed to allow Jake Lloyd to grow up into Hayden Christensen. And yeah, I think that's probably one of the reasons. But the other reason is that, you know, even with growth acceleration and all this other stuff, it still takes a pretty fucking long time to grow an entire clone army. And so what I think George Lucas was doing was basically allowing himself time to, yeah, yeah, what you said in your email is that is the sole reason this movie has to take place 10 years after The Phantom Menace. And you're talking about Anakin getting older. And, you know, yeah, that's definitely one of the concerns. I don't think there's any denying that. But I think another issue is the clone army needed time first off to be ordered and then second off to be grown and then third off to be trained, you know, on and on and on. And the other thing is, you know, there needs to be an overall dilapidation that sets into the galaxy far, far away. Palpatine is not creating all of the, the, the rot and the corruption and other, and all the other bureaucratic just fucking problems that the Republic is facing, but he is exacerbating them. There's no question. And the galaxy far, far away, the Republic, needs to be in worse condition in episode two. And honestly, the only, the most effective way of getting there is 
is basically to allow time to elapse. And then you'll have a contrast now between a very, very imperfect, but still somewhat workable bureaucratic mess that we saw in The Phantom Menace to a complete fucking nightmare like we saw in Attack of the Clones, you know, where Palpatine has taken a bad problem and made it into a fucking crisis, you know, and you need time in order to make that, I guess, a sellable concept. And so I can see a couple of different reasons to to put a, a little bit of a buffer between the Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that there are maybe other story considerations that are going on here. Of all things, you know, that's, you know, pacing issues like those are actually things that, number one, I completely understand. And number two, I kind of agree with, you know. So, again, not saying you're wrong. Just saying that I think George Lucas, he he's not wrong, at least in my opinion, for doing that stuff that way. <clears throat> anyway, getting back into Mike's email, he writes... Natalie Portman aged clearly between Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones, and a male actor could have as well. I'm going to put the email back on pause and say, yeah, I agree. You know, you're absolutely right. She looks very different in Attack of the Clones as compared to the way she looked in The Phantom Menace when she was still kind of a teenager, and at least a little bit, and when she made... Attack of the Clones, she was on the cusp of turning 21, I believe. And so, yeah, I mean, again, you're right, but I it, I, I don't mind it, is what I'm saying. I mean, it works for me. Anyway, I'm rambling here. Get back into Mike's email, he writes. Anyway, in my comments about episode one, I mentioned Lucas had, he'd made the romance between Anakin and Padme creepy. I stand by that. Mainly due to Anakin's behavior especially when he keeps mentioning to everyone how often he dreamed about uh, how often he dreamed about her over the past 10 years. If I were Padme, I'd be calling Yoda on the Jedi Council hotline asking for a different bodyguard. She even told him that he was making her uncomfortable and he's still pursuing. I'm going to put the email on pause and say, you know, dude, I can defend certain aspects of the prequels. There are certain decisions that creative decisions that Lucas made that, you know, I think were a pretty good call in general, but this kind of lurky, creep, uh, creepy Anakin, the kind of stalkery Anakin. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, I want to say that I know where Lucas is coming from here, because as I said in my Attack of the Clones show, this is a story of courtly love. The, the romance between Anakin and Padme, this isn't really meant to be Diane Keaton and Woody Allen and Annie Hall. You know, these aren't people who have been through, you know, relationship after relationship after relationship, and have failed so fucking many times. You know, that's not really who these guys are. They're they're both kind of rookies when it comes to uh, relationships. Neither of them have really done this before. You know, I mean, there are some deleted scenes where it's made pretty clear that uh, Padme, she had, like, childhood boyfriends, but she didn't really have a relationship. You know, she's never really done this before and neither has Anakin. And so I guess I can half-ass excuse some of this weird creepiness in that Anakin may very well not know better. You know, he, it, it, that's totally true. Now that doesn't really explain why 
Padme didn't maybe request a different bodyguard, except for the fact that, like I say, you know, the galaxy far, far away as we see it in Attack of the Clones, this, I think what I compared it to was sort of like the Renaissance, and this is a very formal, very structured period in history where, you know, the idea of dating didn't really exist back then, you know? And romance, it tended to be more formal. And what and what the love story between Anakin and Padme reminds me of is, is kind of a courtly love, you know? And it's not like an American-style, like a modern-day American-style romance. Not really like that. This is more of like a classical type of romance and so by modern standards what he's saying is pretty fucking weird i'll agree with you but there's a vocabulary that george lucas is aiming for and as i uh, as i said in my attack of the clones episode he may get it i don't know that the average moviegoer understood it you know and so as a result of that, I mean, I remember seeing Attack of the Clones and there were people who were laughing, laughing at some of the lines that Anakin was saddled with just because they didn't really seem to get what Lucas was going for. Now, these are people, I assume, who watch Game of Thrones these days and enjoy it or who watched The Tudors and enjoyed that, you know, so on and so on. They can get their minds around the idea of... uh a more traditional, more courtly type of romance. It just needs to be presented to him in a little bit more obvious fashion. And clearly George Lucas didn't do that. So I understand what he's going for. And I understand your point. I'm not saying you're wrong. In fact, I'm saying you're right. You know, I'm just saying that there is a creative intent Lucas was going for there that I think he fell far short of the mark, you know? Anyway, so to get back into Mike's email, though, he writes... The creamy, the creepy dream stuff aside, Anakin has no experience dealing dealing with women, and it shows. And most of the awkwardness comes from there. He doesn't know what he's doing, and then he kisses her. She returns it, and then breaks it off. And like any boy his age, he's wondering just what the hell happened. Their relationship becomes flirtatious. So even though Padme says they can't, of course Anakin knows he can't because attachment is against the Jedi Code. She's still leading him on, as she's clearly more experienced in romance than he is. I'm going to put this email on pause and say, I don't think she is. You know, I'm going to say something, and this may be bothersome to some people, and to them I say, tough shit. But guys, and I'm speaking literally to you male listeners, what you need to understand is that a relationship is inherently a woman's home turf. She's always going to understand relationships better than you do, right? Men tend to be a little bit more rational in our thinking. Now, yes, there are fucking exceptions to that. We can all think of some. That's not the fucking point. The exceptions prove the goddamn rule, okay? Men tend to be very rational in their thinking, and they also tend to be very individualistic in their conduct, you know? Left to their own devices... Men create free markets. It's just the way that we think, you know? And women, by contrast, they tend to be more intuitive in their understanding of the world. Uh, they tend to be more 
where men are, are more individualistic, women tend to be more communal, you know, left to their own devices. Women tend to create uh, socialist type states. You know, I'm not taking sides. I'm not saying that one is better than the other. I'm just saying that this is the way that these two, that, that the two sexes approach the world, right? Women are inherently more comfortable in and more, I guess, comprehending of relationships. And so even though Padme hasn't really done this before, my my God's honest view is that women are inherently better at this than are men, which is good because somebody's got to be good at it. May as well be them. And so I don't know as I'd go so far as to say leading them on. I think this is one of those times in life, and it happens sometimes. In your head, you know that you cannot do something, right? But the heart wants what the heart wants, you know? So Padme... If she had time and if she had time and a piece of paper, she could probably come up with a thousand reasons why she and Anakin can't get together. That's all intellectual, though. Her heart, her heart wants this, you know? And so, I mean, is it leading him on? Well, maybe, but I don't know. I mean, it's what I'm saying is I don't know if it's necessarily accurate to say that she's more experienced in romance. I just think that women are just fundamentally more comfortable with this. They're better at it than we are. You know, that's not good. That's not bad. It's just true. You know, anyway, get back into Mike's email though, because I'm really rambling a lot here. Get back into Mike's email. He writes, a lot of people hate the fruit scene. And I see that as Anakin using his force powers to impress Padme. Again, he's still a teenage boy trying to get the girl. I'm going to put this back on pause and say, yeah, that's exactly what he's doing. And I do find it interesting, though, that Anakin never even attempts to use a Jedi mind trick on her. You know, you will fall in love with me. You know, nothing like that. And he just basically tries to show off. And that is just such a guy thing to do. You know, I mean, when guys show off, we tend to do it kind of big, at least in some cases. I mean, think about it. Taj Mahal, the only reason that thing even exists is because some guy had the hots for some... Sorry, I'm really stopped up here. Some guy had the hots for some girl, and he needed to find some kind of way to show off for her, and so he fucking he built Taj Mahal. That's what women inspire men to do. You know, so uh, it's just one of those things I actually find very easy to believe. Back to Mike's email. Now, everyone loves to, to rag on the fireplace scene, and I did too, mainly because there's no chemistry between them. But I suddenly wondered if that's intended because he's pushing them down a path they both know they can't go. And I think the awkwardness comes from Padme's trying to fight it. And she fights it and wins. And I'm going to put the email on pause here and say, yeah. This is, again, one of those moments when the heart wants what the heart wants. And in particular, in the fireplace scene, um, what you're seeing there is basically you've got Padme and she's sitting on the that little sofa looking thing with with Anakin. She's sitting there and it looks not quite. I mean, they're not exactly snuggling, 
per se, you know, but they are getting a, a little bit cozy there. And, you know, you do, you are kind of within your rights, I think, to kind of question what exactly were they doing before that scene started up. And, but to me, the like the real tell uh, uh, for that scene is is this outfit that Padme's wearing. I mean, she's got, she's got this, it, it sort of is like this sort of corset looking thing that she's wearing. And it's got like this little collar looking thing. And I'm not going to say it's so, I'm not going to go so far as to say, you know, she's going like totally fetish on Anakin. But number one, it's a kind of an interesting insight into Padme, you know, just in terms of like the shit that she's into. Um, but the other thing is, you could view this as kind of being, I don't, I don't want to get too film school on you or anything, but, you know, you could kind of view this as being a little bit of an insight into uh, Padme saying one thing, but with her clothes in this case, she's demonstrating something else. I mean, you can see the top of her boobs, and she's, I mean, just everything that she's wearing, it's really revealing. They're sitting in this uh, this dark, sort of living room together. They've got the fire going and she is honestly, I mean, she's really just a step away from, uh, going like full secretary or 50 shades of gray on Anakin. And it's, she knows, like I say, she knows on an intellectual level, she cannot do this, but what she says with her mouth is very different than what she suggests with her her body with her clothes you know she wants this you know and it doesn't matter how many rational arguments she presents to the contrary she's wearing proof that she's not that her head and her heart are not exactly in sync with one another you know and i i i think that's just really insightful you know, uh, in term, just from a cinematic standpoint. Now, having said that, what you actually say here is there's no chemistry between them. And, you know, dude, you're not wrong. You know, it was, it wasn't very long after Attack of the Clones came out that Natalie Portman did this movie. I think it was called Garden State. And basically it was a sort of a Zach Braff kind of vanity project and he's just this total little emo, whiny, pussy kind of guy. But the way that Braff and Portman play off each other in that movie, I mean, you could totally buy that, you know, they were they were really into each other, you know. And you never really got that with, with uh, uh, Natalie Portman and Hayden Christensen. Not even in Attack of the Clones when they really were supposed to be like fucking like married now like they're a real couple now you know even in there you you just there's something there that you just don't buy you know they don't light up the screen in any kind of way you know and maybe it's unfair to compare this presentation with other cinema but shit since i dragged garden state into it one of my favorite movies of all time is casablanca you know and the way that Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman play off each other, I have no idea what their actual relationship was with one another. But if it came out tomorrow, like somebody found a secret Ingrid Bergman 
diary or something like that where she says, yeah, there was this one night when, you know, she and Bogey just fucked each other's brains out. You know what, dude? I, I would believe that, you know? I mean, they just, they have that chemistry with one another where you not only buy that they're into each other, you buy that they have this, this kind of difficult and complicated history with one another, you know? Easy to believe in, you know? And you never, ever see that with Natalie Portman and Hayden Christensen. And it's not that one of them is a bad actor or they're both bad actors or anything like that. It's just that they just, they don't have that, that pop with each other, you know? And it's, it's really unfortunate. And the most I can figure is that when George Lucas was doing casting for the original Star Wars, basically he would, he, he would interview trios and he would figure out who plays best together. So if he hadn't cast Han, or rather, if he hadn't cast Harrison Ford as Han Solo, if Lucas is to be believed, he would also have not cast Mark Hamill as Luke and Carrie Fisher as Leia. He would have cast a completely different trio. And that doesn't seem to be the mindset with which he entered into casting with the prequels. Now, you could argue that that was maybe somewhat unavoidable because of the fact that Lucas went into this thing knowing he was going to have to get a new Anakin beginning in episode two. But here's the thing. Natalie Portman sat in on all of the Anakin casting sessions, you know? And so she was there for the sole purpose of finding out, can these two play scenes with one another? I've seen their screen tests. They're no better than what you see in the final product. You know, the, the scenes are just as dull, wooden, and lifeless as anything that you see in, the, in, the, in Attack of the Clones or Revenge of the Sith. There's no improvement there. They're the exact fucking same. You know, so it's like to this day, I have to wonder who the fuck cast Hayden Christensen as Anakin, you know? I mean, especially during episode two, George Lucas had the entire world of Hollywood available to him. You know, he could have cast literally anybody he wanted to as Anakin in episode two, you know, and fucking it never happened. You know, I mean, I'm not trying to shit talk Hayden Christensen because I, I, I really do believe he's a good actor. But was he right for Anakin? I don't know, dude. I don't think so. And there were other actors whose names were in the mix for Anakin. You know, you had people like Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, you had people like Paul Walker. You know, basically anybody who has blonde hair, blue eyes in, in Hollywood circa 1999, 2000, 2001. Yeah, they were all kind of, they were all in the mix for, for playing Anakin, you know? And this, and then it was this kind of unknown sort of nobody from Canadian television who ended up nabbing the role. And I think it's a justifiable question to ask, what the fuck happened, you know? So... I don't know. I've got no special insight into any of that. I've always wondered, you know, I've always wanted to get somebody who was involved with the casting of Attack of the Clones drunk and just ask him, dude, just tell me the truth. What fucking happened? You know, because I kind of have to think if they're any good at their job whatsoever, they would have to know that Hayden Christensen has absolutely no chemistry with Natalie Portman. It doesn't matter that Christensen, 
I think did a pretty good job for everything else. You know, for his scenes with Obi-Wan, I think Christensen did really well, you know, for a lot of the scowling and brooding type stuff that Anakin is called upon to do. He did that well for the whining. He did that well. Basically everything else, Hayden Christensen was, yeah, he's pretty good. You know, he didn't stink up the screen, I don't think. But the minute it's all about Natalie Portman, dude, I don't know what the fuck. I mean, I kind of have to wonder sometimes, did they just not like each other as people? I mean, is that what happened? You know, I mean, I'm to be fair to Hayden Christensen, I mean, I think he has more screen time with her in Attack of the Clones than anybody. And if it came out that he didn't like her, well, it's not like I know her myself, but I got to tell you, man, I wouldn't be surprised. She seems like she's a bit uh, difficult, you know? So, anyway. Getting back into Mike's email, though, since this is supposed to be about him, he writes, at least until Anakin's mother dies, and he, basically what he's talking about here, she, Padme, she fights it and wins. Getting back into Mike's email, he writes, at least until Anakin's mother dies, he goes crazy with grief, kills a bunch of sand people, Obi-Wan gets in trouble, they get captured, and she thinks they're going to die. Then she gives in. Okay. And then they survive and decide to get married because we've only got one more movie left in this trilogy. And this story needs to get moving because everyone, or rather anyone, because anyone who knows Star Wars knows, this movie left a lot to be covered by episode three. But that's a complaint for another time. I'm going to put your email on pause and say, you know what, number one, I want you to send me that email at some point. You know, send me that complaint. But number two, this is another one of those moments in the movie that I just kind of find easy to believe. I mean, if you truly believe that you're about to die, which I think would have been a reasonable interpretation for Anakin and Padme to have at that moment that, you know, they're not going to survive this. So yeah, fuck it. As it turns out, I always did love you. So once you've rolled that matzo ball out there and then you survive whatever near death experience that you were, that unfolds, well, then you, you're kind of left dealing with, and now what? And, Look, I don't know. I mean, this kind of relates to a point that I have that George Lucas can say whatever he wants to the contrary. But my God's honest opinion is that if the general backstory of the prequels is even filmable, and I'm not sure that it is, but if it is filmable, he really should have drafted outlines for all of this stuff way ahead of time because the pe the pacing of the prequels is just 10 different kinds of fucked up you know and i don't know i mean this is this truly is one of those times when some kind of like a story editor might have been kind of useful you know somebody to say okay what we need to have is three evenly balanced movies here we can't have two movies we can't have four movies we need three movies no more no less and basically structured the story using whatever means are necessary to get three evenly balanced movies out of this. And obviously that never happened. But, you know, when people say that this whole romance thing with with Anakin and Padme, it's it's just a little uneven. It's kind of all over the place. It doesn't really have focus. It's it's it just sort of comes out of nowhere and then bam, it's over. And you know what? I, 
hey, preach it, brother. I tend to agree with you. You know, I think I, I don't disagree with you at all. You know, so anyway, getting back into Mike's email. Oh, this is going to be good. Getting back into Mike's email, he writes, now, the dialogue. I always got the feeling George Lucas was trying deliberately to make the dialogue sound stuffy and pretentious. I wonder if some of the wooden performances came from actors struggling with the dialogue. I'm going to put your email on pause here and say, look, I'm not a movie director, although I play one on TV. But my guess is everything about these prequels is it, t- it takes place in a different social idiom than we're used to here in the modern world. You know, it really is that simple. And I think better direction may have compensated for some of that. A dialogue rewrite might have compensated for some of that. Less fucking green screen might have compensated for something. But I got to tell you, you know, when you really look at the actors who struggle the most in really all of the prequels, but we're talking about Attack of the Clones here. When you look at the actors who struggle the most, they mostly have one thing in common. They are from North America. You've got Natalie Portman, who is basically American. You've got Hayden Christensen, who's Canadian. And those are really the the main leads, at least as far as North America are concerned. And they struggle like hell with making all of this stuff work. And what what needs to be said here is that these are both method actors, both of them, you know? Natalie Portman and Hayden Christensen are method actors. And method acting is basically... It's basically building your character inside of you. And you are basically forcing yourself to become something that you're not, you know? And it basically starts with trying to understand who this character is, why they do what they do, and all of that sort of thing, you know? And it's... There are instances where I think method acting actually... It, it, it can pay off, you know? Depending on the type of movie that you're doing, it can pay off. And... You know, certainly it doesn't seem like method acting has harmed Daniel Day-Lewis's career. So, I suppose there's that. But the 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 kind of weird thing about I guess the uh, uh, Attack of the Clones as a film is that not everybody in it is method right there are there are i'm trying to think of the best way to 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 put it but there are other types of actors in this movie and if you look at them they mostly come from europe sam jackson is really the lone major exception in terms of method actors who are actually successful in in the star wars prequels He's the only one that's really able to to basically not embarrass himself in in the movie, right? And it's kind of interesting to think that, you know, 
he's he is method, but he I've always I've, I've often kind of wondered. I know officially he's a method actor, but I've often wondered how method is he really? You know, because if you just look at the way that he plays a lot of his roles, there are differences between Jules Windu versus sorry, Jules Windu <laughs> between Jules Winfield and Mace Windu. They are not the same character by any stretch of the imagination. But there's a kind of nonchalant aspect that Sam Jackson has that he seems to focus more on on delivering his lines as opposed to creating character. It's like he lets the he lets the the lines kind of determine his character's reality. And that sounds to me more like classical acting. And that's more what you see from Ewan McGregor, who was, I think, amazing in the Star Wars prequels. It's the kind of acting that you see from, um, golly, what's his, uh, Christopher Lee. It's the kind of acting, basically everybody else, anyone who's from Europe and in a Star Wars movie, Liam Neeson, there's another one. And they basically are, ten- they tend to be more classical actors. And they tend not to worry so much about building character and you know well what did what wh- what's my character's favorite thing to eat for breakfast you know and just kind of weird fucking bullshit like that you know what did you know what were my uh, when my character was a sophomore in high school what grades did he make in geometry you know just weird fucked up just trivial bullshit like that you know and that you know I at least have always associated with method acting that's not a part of classical acting they get the flavor of the character and then they they basically build out. So instead of working in, they build out. And I think that's why actors like Ewan McGregor, actors like Christopher Lee and all the rest, and you know what? You could say even Frank Oz, they tend to be a little bit more successful in these types of movies simply because they let reality determine their performance instead of letting character determine their performance. Does that make sense? I don't know if I'm doing a very good job of explaining this, but what I find is that except for Sam Jackson in theory, because I've again, I don't know if I completely buy the fact that he's a method actor, but except for Sam Jackson, at least on paper, the method actors are really the only ones who struggled with performance in the Star Wars prequels. And I, and because of the fact that you can't really how do you how, how do you method act in a Star Wars movie because there's really no such thing as the force there are no Jedi there are no lightsabers and there there is no Sith there is no dark side you know what I'm saying I mean it's kind of hard for a method for a method actor to get his footing in Star Wars whereas a classical actor to him there's fundamentally no difference between this as opposed to Shakespeare, you know, because they both work the same parts of the imagination, you know? And I think that tends to be why the classical actors tend to be better in Star Wars than the method actors. So, fuck it, whatever, I'm rambling, I'm repeating myself here. So, to get back into into Mike's email, he, he closes out by saying, but overall, this had the spirit of Star Wars more than its predecessor, but I wish this was episode one. Of course, We'd need another way to introduce Owen and Baru to set up the end of Episode 3, but if the prequel started here, it might have been a more rewarding experience. Signed, Mike. And that's the end of the email. And Mike, you know, I mean, I understand that argument that if Episode 2 had in fact been Episode 1, 
and then there'd been, I don't know, something else for episode two, and then, I guess, Revenge of the Sith is episode three. I understand that argument, and I, I get where you're coming from. To me, that's an issue of pacing. And I think at least some of that could have been counteracted by George Lucas drafting outlines for each of these movies and then getting those outlines to work together instead of working off of a general prequel outline, developing outlines for each one of these movies specifically so that they would better fit together with one another and more evenly pace out the story. And I honestly believe that would have resulted in a better final product. But I don't know. Obviously, that's not that's not what happened. And, you know, because of that, I'm not real big on reboots and retcons and relaunches and all that stuff, but what I'll say is this. If Disney, and this is never going to happen, but if Disney were to announce tomorrow that, you know what, we're st- we, we are nuking everything. If it didn't happen in the original unaltered version of the trilogy, it didn't fucking happen. And we're going to make prequels of our own. We're going to do our versions of episode one, two, and three. We're going to have our own brand new story. We're going to have probably, for the most part, a brand new cast. I mean, certain characters have, they pretty much have to come back. You know, Ian McDermott, he would have to come back to play Palpatine. You pretty much have to have Anthony Daniels back to play 3PO. You pretty much have to have Frank Oz come back to play Yoda. But otherwise, we're going to have a completely new cast, a completely new Uh, range of characters, a completely new storyline, a completely new timeline. And we're going to try to make this fit as perfectly well with the original unaltered trilogy as we can. You know what? I'd actually be open to that. You know, I think that there's a lot of disco potential to the idea of rebooting, not Star Wars per se, but rebooting the prequels and basically coming up with a backstory that fucking makes sense that fits with the timeline, that fits the characters, that fits the existing narrative, that fits the existing backstory. I think there's a lot of juice to that idea, you know? And, you know, I like I say, I I truly don't think it's ever going to happen, but I'd, I, I would be open to that, you know? I would be very hip to that if that happened. Hell, bring John Williams back. Hey, throw out all the stuff that you did last time, and if it's possible, and just approach this with the same type of mentality as though you're doing this for the first time. What would you do differently? Or shit, maybe get a different composer in on it. You know, it's a different period in the in the galaxy's history. Maybe get a different, a, a little bit of a different musical flavor to it, you know? There are all different kinds of ways to make this work. And, like I say, I don't think it's ever gonna happen. But it would be fucking awesome if it did. So, anyway. So, that, I think, is pretty much the end of my Star Wars comments, at least for the time being. I am planning, just for continuity's sake, I am planning, at some point, a Revenge of the Sith episode. I'm still gathering my notes and trying to get all of that shit organized, so don't expect that anytime soon. But, sooner or later, it's fucking, it's gonna happen. So, be sure of that. So, I think that's basically it for me. Now, as to next week... Uh, basically what I'm going to be doing is talking about Supreme number 41 as written by Alan Moore, but that's next week. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week. So bye everybody. I will see you next week.
You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarter Bin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes. And you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. 
Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>